We'll be looking first this morning at Acts 16. If you'd like to make your way there, Acts 16, and then we'll be looking at 2 Timothy. Acts chapter 16 and later to the book of 2 Timothy. I was looking at uh, some sermon records and saw that it's been nine years since I addressed this particular issue on Mother's Day. We have had some infamous sermons on Mother's Day, which I would rather not recall, but uh, the day where I forgot that it was Mother's Day and preached on Satan, I'll never (laughs) forget that day. Some of you have made sure I never will forget that day. (laughs) But there is, in fact... uh, a good deal of philosophy that goes behind it, because uh, as I teach the students at Central in our uh, class on church history, I think there's good reason to be concerned that we not allow a holiday calendar to dictate our preaching plan. But we did end a series last week, and so I would like to address uh, this issue specifically today, though it is somewhat rare for us but we will uh, look at it in the uh, preaching service here as well. And so let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer as we continue to consider the theme of of this day as the national calendar directs us to and as we are certainly thankful to do as we consider those uh, within our assembly who are mothers. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we ask for insight into your word, for understanding and to discern the truth of Scripture, each one of us in our own setting and time and place, and to realize the importance of these passages to which we look today as we consider the life of our church and the life of the families within our assembly. For each one, I pray, God, that you would help us through the Spirit to discern what you are saying to your church this day. And I pray that we would be faithful to this time of study and discernment, and that the Spirit would convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And Lord, that we would put first things first, and that we would see all of life from the center of our relationship with you. Guide, Father, this day that we'd understand your word, honor those that are to be honored, but most of all, that we would look to you, realize that we gather this day in your name, It is a day set apart for the consideration of your purposes, and we thank you for that opportunity. As we honor mothers, as we honor women today in general, we do so because, Father, we honor you and your wise plan of redemption, your your wise plan of sanctification, and we exalt you as we think of the work that you have done and the beauty of a life that is lived according to your path, according to your plan and purposes. Lord, please again now open your word to our understanding through Jesus we pray. Amen. In the Apostle Paul's second letter to Timothy, we find one of the rare references in the Bible to a mother's specific influence upon her children. Obviously, the labors of mothers and fathers are assumed throughout the scriptures as a pervasive and vital influence upon children. But we find in the book of 2 Timothy a direct reference to the specific influence of one mother upon her son, and that, of course, is somewhat rare in the text of Scripture. Her name was Eunice, and from what we gather from various texts of the Bible, she would certainly serve as a good model for any believing mother to follow. As I paint a portrait this morning of her life, I remind those of us who are not mothers 
that these thoughts are vital to each of us because what we discover about Eunice has everything to do with our church and has everything to do with the homes in our assembly. No matter who we are, we relate to this information in some sense. And each one of us has a specific role to play in this work that we do together as we raise up another generation, as we continue to nurture the strength of our assembly and our families. We turn our attention first to the book of Acts, where we find the first canonical reference to Eunice, starting in chapter 16. We will then turn back to the book of 2 Timothy and try to unpack what we learn about her in these passages. But first of all, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, a historical note. Chapter 16 of Acts, verse 1, he came to Derby, that is Paul, and then to Lystra. Lystra would be in modern Turkey, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. That is, Timothy's father would have been a pagan, an unbeliever. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, spoke well of Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. In other words, to provide opportunity to speak more freely to the Jews, who were the initial contact right now in the dissemination of the gospel, the primary contact as far as numbers would go, and the place where Paul would start at various cities. He needed to circumcise Timothy so that the Jews would know that he identified with the people of God, roughly. This was not for Timothy's salvation, as would be made very clear in days to come or had been made very clear already in Acts chapter 15 and more clear in days to come. This is not the point, but it was a desire to identify with the people to whom Paul and Timothy would be sharing the gospel. But what is clear is that Timothy's father was not a believer in God, not a believer in Yahweh, and would not allow his son under his care to be circumcised, to identify with the Jews. Now if you'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, we learn more about Timothy and his mother. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, we'll just pick up there. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 3, after the salutation, after the introduction to this letter to Timothy and the last of Paul's writings, he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, 2 Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Chapter 3 and verse 13. Chapter 3 and verse 13. Here we'll just pick up right in the middle of the sentence. We shouldn't do that, but we're getting our way down to verse 15. At verse 13, he references evil men, chapter 3, 13, and impostors who will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's trace out a little bit more of the picture here. 
As we consider these words about Timothy, about Eunice and Lois from the pen of the Apostle Paul, the greatest theologian of church history, and think about that, the greatest theologian of church history, in fact, the greatest missionary, and the most recognizable name is undoubtedly Saul of Tarsus or the Apostle Paul. No single man, no single human being has been more used of God to shape the thinking and the practice of the church of Jesus Christ than this man. And if we were to name his single most helpful colleague, who would it be? I think undoubtedly we would have to say that it would be Timothy. Most likely led to Christ on Paul's second missionary or first missionary journey through Lystra. Timothy joined Paul on his second missionary journey as he passed again through that area. And Timothy from that point factored into everything that the Apostle Paul did. Attesting to Timothy's importance to Paul, the early church, the initial spread of the gospel, we can note a few ideas about him. First of all, think about this. Timothy is mentioned in 10 of the 13 biblical books written by Paul. He is sometimes mentioned with Paul in the introduction of these letters and the salutation as if he stands with Paul, the author. Think of the book of Philemon, for instance, which says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon. He stands right there with Paul in many of these books. Paul placed implicit trust in Timothy as well. Paul often assigned crucial and difficult responsibilities to this young man. He leaned on Timothy. He sent this young assistant to straighten out doctrinal problems in certain cities and to untangle quarrels between church members at various locations. He sent Timothy to stand against and to rebuke false teachers who had infiltrated some of the local assemblies. Whatever the task, when the going got tough, Paul could say to, of Timothy, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19, I paraphrase, there is no other man who is so like-minded with me that he will naturally render spiritual watch care to the flock of God in my place. I completely trust his theology. I completely trust his character. And he said to the churches to whom he wrote, I pray and command that you treat him in the very same way. And it is also interesting and attests to the importance of this man, Timothy, that the last written words of the Apostle Paul were personal words of instruction to this young man whose company Paul craved as he faced execution in Rome. Paul could make one last investment in the gospel. And the investment he made was to write to this man, Timothy, to strengthen his hand in God to build him up, and in fact to call for one final meeting between them, should God allow. So when we think of Timothy, we must think of a man who was mentored by the Apostle Paul for leadership in the church. We think of a man who had a profound influence for Jesus Christ and for true doctrine. And as we think of Timothy, we consider a choice servant of God whose mother played a critical role in his development. I think we need to be cautioned at this point. No mother can make her child into a servant of God by following a few guidelines. It doesn't work that way. And we need to be cautious as well. No child can excuse his or her lack of love for God on a mother's poor example or failure. 
It doesn't work that way either. However, I do think that we can draw from Eunice three exhortations for Christian mothers which are also applicable to each of us as we seek to inspire and train the next generation for Christ. And this outline is somewhat uneven, certainly, but I know not how to put this first one as we go back to chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, rather than to just say this, think generationally. Think generationally. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. I have been reminded. The Greek term is idiomatic. It was a phrase that would be used of an external reminder. And so we might suggest here possibly that Timothy had come to Paul's remembrance because of some report that had come from another place about him. Obviously, he doesn't even need to say this or use this idiom of speech on the basis of verses 3 and 4. He's obviously remembering Timothy night and day in his prayers. But he remembers him in some external way. Timothy is, is brought to his mind, and specifically, it is his sincere faith that Paul remembers. And what probably meant more than anything to Paul his sincere faith, verse 5. And I think that means that there was no hypocrisy in Timothy's reliance upon God. Timothy did not live one way at church and a different way at home. He did not take liberties in his moral life. He did not doubt God's love or question God's justice or become impatient when God seemed to delay. His faith was solid. And Paul remembered it with gladness in his heart. Timothy was through and through a man of God at all times. And Paul looked back to the generational heritage from which this faith providentially passed. You are a man of sincere faith, and I remember this as I think of you. And specifically, Paul says, this faith came from Lois, your grandmother, and it came from Eunice. It passed through them to you. And th this word first that we find here in verse 5 is placed in an emphatic position in the original text. That is, it is emphasized. It could, for that matter, be underlined if it were written today. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, faith which first lived in your grandmother. It's impossible for us to know if the faith of these two women was a faith in the Old Testament Scriptures as Jews or faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps it was both. It is possible that they died as faithful Jews, having never heard the gospel of Christ, but I think that's unlikely. We could say certainly that had they known of Christ crucified and rejected him as Jews, Paul would have never referred to them as having sincere faith. For Paul, there was one way of salvation to believe in the God of Scripture was to believe in Christ and to know him. And so he finds in them sincere faith, which we might assume would be a faith that probably began with a study of the Jewish Scriptures, identifying with the people of God, and then possibly transferred, maybe in Lois, maybe in Eunice, maybe in both, to a faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah and Savior. Since Paul refers to Timothy as his son in the faith, it may be that Paul led Timothy to Christ, not Eunice, we don't know. It may be that Paul is simply using that phrase to say that he is the one that discipled and trained uh, Timothy for ministry. We don't know any of these things. But what we do see here 
is that Timothy is called to remember the faith of his grandmother and his mother. It was a sincere faith. It was a faith to which he could look for inspiration. He says, I'm persuaded that it resides in you as well. And I think there's an important point there. The faith is never transferred humanly. We cannot press it into our children. There is a sense in which Paul lines up Lois and Eunice and Timothy and he looks at each one and says, I'm persuaded there's sincere faith in each of you. It has passed down a generational line, but he is looking to the fruit in Timothy's life, not simply to the faith of his grandmother and mother. It's not passed on because of our heritage, because of uh, through genetic lines. It is genuine faith that a person receives as they place their confidence in God as Savior. But Paul was confident that it was possessed by each of these individuals. And again, he calls Timothy to think about his heritage. Timothy knows what Paul's talking about here. That's obvious. But think about it. Paul purposely directs Timothy to look back to his mother and his grandmother and to acknowledge the sincere faith that resided in them and which was communicated to him. What a tremendous heritage Timothy had. To have a mother and father that passed on the faith, or a mother rather, and a grandmother that passed on the faith. And I would say to all of us who have had such a heritage, it might be a good time to stop and be thankful for it. It is a gift from the Father above to give to any of us, one or two parents, and maybe even grandparents behind them, who had sincere faith. As I have told our teens repeatedly the last few weeks on Wednesday nights, there's one secret I know about their parents. None of them is perfect. And I know that about my parents, you know that about yours, and we know that as parents, that none of us is perfect. But what a heritage to have parents who had a sincere faith in God. Some of you have not enjoyed that privilege. You have your own grace from God to receive in that matter. But if you have received that gift, we should honor God for it. We should thank Him for it. None of them passed it on in perfection to us. But we should be thankful for the legacy of faith that so many of us have received. What a legacy it was for Timothy, and what a legacy for Grandmother Lois. Her faith passed to her daughter, was passed on to her grandson. I realize not much is given to us here about Lois' relationship to Timothy. I'm conscious of that. But if you can grant me at least this, that Timothy had to recognize the sincere faith of his mother or grandmother, or this instruction means nothing. He had to acknowledge it. He had to be aware of it. He had to know it. And so I think it suggests to us this important application point. Moms, I think we need to think generationally, and grandmothers as well. I think you need to see yourself not only as training your children to know God, but as training them to reach their children to know Christ. There's a principle that was shared with me a long time ago. I have long since forgotten the source. But someone said to me, the test of your labors as a parent is realized more in your grandchildren than it is in your children. And I think there's some good sense in that. It certainly can be misapplied, but I think there's some good truth in there. We need to think about our grandchildren 
not just our children. And I don't think that that is so much a common thought these days. I think by way of illustration, I get telephone calls from time to time from friends, people who apparently, I guess on this issue, respect my opinion uh, and ask me about a church change, not coming to this church, but to another church, and considering various options. And I'll tell you, sometimes their stories are sad when you think of what is there in some communities, and some of the choices people have to make are excruciatingly difficult. But one thing I noticed, it just seems to be a pattern that as so many times as I filter these calls, there is basically this theme. There's a church over here that really provides a lot. It's really a kind of neat place to be. But we would have to make some compromises theologically. Now, all of us make compromises theologically in every church. There are no two people that agree on everything theologically. But I'm talking about some fairly significant issues that will take a family down a particular direction. And again, I think this principle comes into play. The principle is don't just think about the church you can get your children through. Think about what it's going to mean to your grandchildren. If you can answer that faithfully with a clear conscience, then maybe you're on the right track. But if you can't, be warned. Yes, we can, all of us, certainly exist in a church we don't agree with as adults. We can filter out certain doctrinal differences. We can say, oh, I, I don't prefer this. Or maybe there's a practice of the church or a ministry of the church. I, I don't fully agree with that. We can filter that out. And we may even be able to filter some of that out with our children in view. But we have to look beyond what happens when those children have children and are part of these assemblies. What then? Think about your grandchildren. It's just one point of application. But I'd like to go just a little further and say this. I think we should learn to conceive grandparenting days as days of great opportunity to pass on the faith to our children's children. Grandparents today, it would seem, at least in this country, exist to spoil the grandkids at any cost. Indulge them with things. Give them whatever will make them happy for the moment. Turn them into absolute rascals and then turn them back to their mom and dad. That seems to be the pattern of the day so often. I think we really all need to think through that. And I'm not talking here specifically to grandparents. I'm talking to people who are becoming grandparents someday. Even those of you who aren't even married yet. Think about being a grandparent. My wife will attest to this, that when we first got married, I think it was probably on our honeymoon, I said, I can't wait to become a grandfather. <laughs> I know that's weird thinking. I'm not, it's not the first place that I exercise strange thinking. But I, I, just, I look at the opportunity of that. To pass on the faith, the sincere faith to not just our children, but to our children's children. In other words, it's not to focus our attention on I can't wait to indulge grandchildren, but I can't wait to teach the faith of Jesus to grandchildren. To a second generation should he allow us to live. What better legacy to leave behind than a legacy of faith? To say as you leave this life that you have grandchildren, a second generation who loves God as you do, and that you've had a part in their life. 
We get so wrapped up in things and so wrapped up in fun and so wrapped up in feeling good ourselves, I think, as parents and grandparents, that we sometimes miss what is most important of all to communicate the faith. What a tremendous legacy for Lois, and what a tremendous legacy for Eunice. We'll get to her now, but although her husband apparently was not a believer, she was able to influence her son for righteousness. In the end, she embraced the sincere faith of her mother and passed it on to her son. Think generationally. Back to chapter 3 now as we hone in on Eunice. Chapter 3 and verse 13 and following specifically at verses 14 and 15. But I think we find secondly here an exhortation to live the truth. Live the truth. Verses 10 through 13 constitute a warning against evil men. In verse 13, there is a reference there in the NIV to imposters. The Greek word could be translated variously. It was used in secular literature of false magicians. These are religious charlatans, tricksters, magicians. These are men who deceive people in godless living by means of godless words. And you notice there in verse 13 that not only are they imposters, not only are they deceivers themselves, they are also being deceived. That is, their own sins snare them and they begin to believe themselves. They believe their false teaching. But notice verse 14. Having introduced these individuals, Paul then writes to Timothy, verse 14, but as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. But as for you, in sharp contrast to those who are snared in falsehood, Paul calls Timothy to hold fast to the truth. As for you, continue. That word continue, favorite word of the Apostle John. Remain, abide. The Greek word meno, continue on in the things that you have learned. Specifically, he's to hold to what he has learned and has become convinced of. Now notice carefully why he is to hold to the teachings that he's embraced. Paul could have said a lot of things. He could have said, hold on to the teachings that you've embraced because they're right. And that would have been well to say. But notice what he says. He chooses a different angle. He says, but as for you, in contrast to the false teachers and imposters, the deceivers, as for you, continue in what you have learned of and have become convinced of. Now notice this, verse 14. Because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Why? Because you know those from whom you have learned it. I think Paul refers to himself, obviously, verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, etc. He's obviously referring to himself. But did Paul teach Timothy the Holy Scriptures from infancy? Obviously not. He meets him in adulthood. And so verse 15 would indicate to us that he's also referring to Lois and to Eunice. Notice that verse 14 does not emphasize what Timothy learned but from whom Timothy learned it. Hold the faith, says Paul, because you know those from whom you learned it. In other words, you know me, Timothy, and you can look back to the life of your mother and your grandmother, and what you saw in them should serve as ongoing motivation to cling to the faith. It's a profound line of argument. Here is the greatest theologian and missionary of the church. 
And he is encouraging his primary partner in the gospel to consider the character of his mother as a legitimate basis to persevere in the faith. All about him were deceivers and deceived people. But Timothy was to find in his mother ballast for resisting the evil about him and for remaining true to the faith. Now, I doubt, I sincerely doubt, that as Eunice was changing Timothy's diaper or nursing him, I doubt that as she comforted him when he had a skinned knee or held him when he was afraid of the dark, I doubt that she ever thought she held in her arms a church leader whose name would be known to every generation of Christians throughout time. And as she taught young Timothy to read and began to teach him the stories of Adam and Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses, as she taught him about the exodus from Egypt and God's plan for his people and the coming Messiah, as she taught him these things from the Old Testament scriptures, she had no idea who her little boy would become. Just a little boy who watched her life and listened to her doctrine. For reasons unknown, she'd been given in marriage to a pagan Greek, and it would really be interesting to know why. A pagan Greek who never allowed his son to undergo circumcision, the sign of the Jewish faith and of entering the covenant, but yet with consistency, Eunice lived a life of sincere faith. So faithful was her life that the esteemed apostle noticed and he called Timothy to cling to the truth by remembering the life of his mother. And mom, it reminds us, there are eyes that watch you every day. What do they see? Your example is not all important. You cannot make them believe on the force of your character and life. And every child is fully responsible for their walk with God, no matter how you live, however... Your example may be much more important than you would ever believe. In the face of a fallen and corrupt world, is your life a pillar of virtue to which your children can someday turn for stabilizing inspiration? Or will they have to stand for God despite your example? We're challenged here to live the truth. And then thirdly, we're challenged here to teach the Word. That's obvious. But verse 14, I think, draws attention to Lois's and Eunice's life. Verse 15 looks to their doctrine. And from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In contrast to the false teachers, Timothy was to cling to doctrine, to truth. First, recognizing the people from whom he learned that doctrine, second, by recognizing his heritage and grounding in that doctrine. He was privileged to have learned the Scriptures from infancy. I take that to mean what? I don't know. I take that to mean that as his mother nursed him, as she held her baby boy, that she quoted or sang Scripture passages to him as the Jews were accustomed to do. I take it that it would mean that in line with Jewish custom of the day, she began to teach him the law of Moses at age five 
And I take it to mean that as Timothy grew older, Eunice continued in the spirit of Deuteronomy 6 to impress upon her son the words of God when he sat at home, when they walked along the road, when she tucked him in bed at night, and when she greeted him in the morning as he got up. It's not formal teaching. As you get your child up in the morning at seven years of age and they rub their eyes and get the sleep out, you don't say, now I want you to recite to me the five points of Calvinism and which ones you agree with and which ones you don't. Why we're not Arminians and why we, what? no, they aren't going to follow that. But it's simple. It's simple as I had the privilege to do just yesterday, just comes to mind, just to hold a little girl in my arms, to show her out the window and say simply, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now let's get down for breakfast. I don't mean to simplify it, but there are those who simply force-feed doctrine down their children's throats, and all they want to do is regurgitate it as soon as they're out of the home. There's a way of teaching the Scriptures. But it's a way that involves all of life. It's a way that breathes and thinks the truth of God. We need to think thoughtfully of how we might do that with our children. Grounding them in the truth of the Word. I don't know exactly how Eunice did it, but she taught her son from infancy. She started this process at birth. And to what end? Why? Verse 15b makes so clear, these scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible communicates the truth upon which faith in Christ is placed, resulting in salvation. Only the Bible can deliver the truth necessary for salvation. And I don't think salvation here should be understood as freedom from hell alone but should be understood as the new life in Christ. It was that life to which Paul challenged Timothy to cling, and it was that life that Timothy saw in his mother and his grandmother and the life about which he had learned from his earliest recollections. What a tremendous heritage. Mom, there are many things your children will learn from you. Many things. Most important is that they learn from your mouth the truths of God's Word. Keep that in perspective. Keep in perspective as you lead your children what is it that really matters. And most important is that they see the truth of God's Word displayed in your life. It's more important than running them around to all the activities. It's more important than what school they're in. It's more important than how they're clothed or if they're popular with their, with their friends down the street. What's most important of all is have you taught them that God is a great God who is love and who has loved them. Whether or not they become a great missionary who risks life and limb for Christ, whether or not their names are recorded in the history books, labor to give them a spiritual foundation on which they can build their faith. If they turn from God someday, you've done what God has called you to do. 
If they follow God in adulthood, they will rise up and call you blessed. And as we close, let me encourage you that impressing upon your children the truth of God is then never in vain. Though this world will never commend it, you're in the process of birthing and equipping soldiers for the kingdom of God. I don't think that there's really any higher calling for any of us in this life. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, how we thank you for your word and we thank you for the people of faith whose lives are recorded in it. What rich food we have shared as we have studied the life of Abraham in the weeks gone by. This man of faith for whom we thank you. And what great challenge there is for us today as we think of the likes of Eunice and Lois and Timothy and Paul and the life of faith that it is our joy to live. And God, I know a day like this brings all types of memories, many kinds of emotions. There are certainly regrets and there are heartaches that are present in our assembly today. But we thank you, God, for the reminder of what it is really all about. In the end, it's not about any one of our personal families. It's about your glory and your honor and the spread of your gospel and the spread of your truth and the defense of the faith by your people. And I pray that we'd pour our lives into that, that you would free us as an assembly from the idolatry of children that is so prevalent among believers in our day, certainly among unbelievers as well. Free us from the idolatry. But God, then in that freedom, I pray that you'd open to us vistas to see how we may proclaim the faith to our children. Those who are moms, those who are fathers, those who do not have children, those that are able to look down and see someone in age that is under them, and to pick them up. I pray that we would all do that and pour out our lives as we seek to proclaim the faith to a growing generation. We thank you for the reminder of this great task and of your love for us. We thank you as our Father that your love reaches to, the, to each of us where we are. And we thank you, dear God, that you have in your love laid out a word for us to follow. And I pray that we would do so, that you would allow us in these prayers that now ascend to you in the spirit of your people, bring an answer, help those who make commitments in their heart now, who resolve in their mind to follow a path of discipline and change. I pray, God, that you will mix those weak and human commitments with your divine power that you would enable us and work within us to will and to do of your good pleasure. Do that work now, I pray, through the ministry of the Spirit, and may this be a day of awakening and change and growth for us. For anyone who may not know you as Savior, I pray that they would find in you, despite what they have suffered in this world through sin, they would find in you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, that they would leave their sin and find full forgiveness in your work on Calvary for them. This we pray in our Savior's name. Amen.
Let's stand together and sing once again 456, a fitting conclusion, I think, to what we've considered together. That the Lord would find each of us faithful in our own circle and our own responsibilities. 456.